Please take a Bible in hand and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This morning I want us to think about faithfulness in difficult times. And we'll be looking at the entire chapter here. If you're using a Bible that's there in the pew rack, you'll want to turn to page 996. Now we're jumping into uh, one of Paul's letters. This is one of his last letters. And the context is that Paul is in prison. He's in prison in Rome and he's writing to his disciple, Timothy. Now Timothy, he speaks of in some places as his own child in the faith. Um, this is a young pastor that has learned pastoring from Paul himself. And now he's pastoring a congregation that Paul uh, planted in Ephesus. He says, protege in ministry. And this heartfelt letter is Paul's farewell letter to Timothy. Paul will be executed by Nero not long after penning this letter. And after many years and many difficulties, Paul comes to the end of his life and to the end of his ministry. And here at the end, he can reflect back and he could see God's faithfulness to him. And Paul can testify that he's been faithful to his Savior and to the gospel. And so he's writing to Timothy because he desires that the church that Timothy is pastoring would remain faithful and that Timothy himself would continue in faithfulness long after Paul is gone. Well, that is the context here of the letter, and we'll delve more into it in chapter 3. But before we read God's Word, let us ask for His help in prayer. Please join me in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we desperately need You to speak. Help us to hear and receive Your Word. As your word goes forth this morning from this pulpit, that it is read and as it is explained, uh, may it draw those who are unconverted to Jesus, we ask. We pray for those who do know the Savior that, Lord, this would be a word for building them up. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Strengthen our faith where it is weak. Comfort us where we need comforting. I pray, Lord, and ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be pleasing to you. So I seek to open your word and proclaim it by the power of your spirit. So we ask that you would make it a swift word to us this day, passing from our ears to our hearts and from our hearts to our lives. And we ask this by the power of your spirit, and for the sake of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Hear the word of God from 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, 
brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at, I at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. The second to last verse in this chapter, verse 16, is one of the most important Bible verses. And it's been a verse that's been debated heavily over the last two centuries. It's imported and it's debated because it's foundational to understanding the origin of the Bible. One of the most important things to understand about the Bible is that the Bible itself claims to be the very Word of God. How can we say that the Bible is the Word of God if it doesn't affirm that it is God's very Word? In 2 Timothy 3.16 is therefore of the utmost importance because it is one of the places that we see clearly the origin of Scripture. What kind of book are you holding in your hands today? Is it like every other book or is it distinct from every other book? Well, how you interpret verse 16 and apply it goes a long way into answering that question. However, what we see here in chapter 3 is that questions over the doctrine of Scripture, that wasn't what was primary in Paul's mind. As he gives us this very important passage under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, this wasn't his first priority to give a proof text for the inspiration of Scripture. The question he's answering is how can Timothy remain faithful after Paul is gone. 
And so his primary concern is to point to Timothy to the sufficiency, the usefulness, and we could say the necessity of Scripture. It's the utility of Scripture that he lays out. And I'm using utility in a good way, showing its profitableness, as the passage says. There's a void coming in Timothy's life. He's going to lose his father in the faith. And Paul wants him to know that Scripture is abundantly sufficient to equip Timothy for faithfulness and usefulness. But in the context of the chapter, we see that he first has an eye towards faithfulness and then usefulness. That is the goal of the Christian life, is faithfulness, then usefulness. And this is what Paul is writing to his young disciple who's in pastoral ministry, and it applies to all believers. Paul's heart for Timothy is that he wants him to say the very thing he's going to say in just a couple verses later in chapter 4. Paul will say of his own life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Oh, it's his desire that his disciple will be able to say the same thing. It's his desire that all who name the name of Christ, who when they come to the end, that if the Lord tarries and that they are to leave this life through death, on the eve of seeing their Savior's face, that they would be able to say the same thing. I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. And say it to the end of their race. The most important goal in the Christian life is to continue in faithfulness to Christ and the gospel. And in God's word, we are given everything that we need to reach that goal. So I want us to consider our chapter under three headings. In the first nine verses, we see the challenge to faithfulness. Then in verses 10 to 13, we see faithfulness modeled. And then in verses 14 through 17, how to continue in faithfulness. It's a simple message with a simple outline but it's a glorious truth. Let us consider it. So the verse, verses one through nine, the challenge to faithfulness. Well, what do we have in these first nine verses? Well, in verses one through five, we see a terrible description. We see moral degeneracy. Then we see in verses six through seven, that among these who were exhibiting moral degeneracy, there would be leaders who would rise among them. Beginning back in chapter 2, Paul was giving Timothy instructions on how to deal with false teachers. And among those described in verses 1 through 5, he said there would be those who would, who would come out as false teachers and they would worm their way into the, the home of vulnerable women. It would appear that these are women who are unconverted. They are learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth, but yet they are drawn to spiritual things and easily deceived by false teachers. 
And so one of the ways that education would take place in the ancient world is that you would hire tutors and bring them into your home. And there are among these false teachers those who are doing this. But then the section ends with a great assurance that the apostle gives an illustration from the book of Exodus. And he names two men who oppose Moses, Janus and Jambres. Now, we don't know from Scripture, but we know from history that these were the names of two in Pharaoh's court who opposed Moses. That when he stood before Pharaoh and he gave a sign that he was a messenger from God, one of the signs was that he threw down his rod before Pharaoh's court and it turned into a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians came out, Janus and Jambres among them, and they did the same. But then Moses' rod consumed their rod. And as they stood to oppose Moses and oppose the truth, they were defeated. And so Paul tells Timothy, understand that you're living in difficult times, that these are the last days, that things are getting worse. That here we see that the last days isn't just the time just prior to return of Christ, but it's the period of the already and the not yet, that Christ is the ascended Lord. And as his people await for his return and are going forth with the great commission, this is part of what is happening. Difficult days will come. But just in those difficult days, as false teachers arrive, as those who will explicitly expose, oppose the truth, Paul gives Timothy the assurance that those who oppose the truth will not be able to stand. Their folly will be made known to all. It's a great assurance in dealing with this. But we must think about the terrible description there in verse 2 through 5 a little bit more. There, it's 19 different descriptors of moral degeneracy. Now, what's tragic about it is that here, the opposition to the believer isn't necessarily spoken of in just, just our indwelling sin. It isn't just the sense that we all can resonate with the line from, Come thou fount, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. There's more than that just going on here. It's not just the battle of Christ-likeness and growing in holiness that's being described here. And it's not just the outward, outside the church opposition to the gospel that Paul is warning Timothy about here. No, the opposition to the gospel we see in verse 5 is coming from within the church. That is what heightens the warning. Look back at verse 5 having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What is described here is occurring within the visible church among those who've been baptized and made a profession of faith, who've gathered for worship, who wear the name of Jesus, who claim to be disciples. He says, be careful. And when you see these things, his instructions are first to understand and then to avoid. But then in verse 9, but do not worry. 
Do not be overcome with anxiety because of this. And that's where then he gets to the power of God's word to keep God's people faithful. But before moving on from this, notice we can't go through every list, everything here listed in these 19 things. But the headings and the closing are very helpful. Verse 2, for people will be lovers of self. And from it, then you see lovers of money. And then it goes through both attitudes towards others and attitude towards God. And then in verse 4, the second half of the verse, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you see the bookends of what's described? It's disordered love. What is the enemy of the church? It is satanic self-centeredness. And this is what Paul is calling Timothy to be on guard against. Watch out for those with the me-first mentality sitting in the pew. Demonstrated in love for themselves above their brother and sister in Christ. Love for themselves above their neighbor. A love of pleasure rather than a love of God. And what is evident? That though they profess to believe the gospel, they deny the gospel's power. But do you hear the implied good news for you, Christian? That the power of the gospel can overcome your sinful selfishness. That is the power of the gospel working in us. Expelling what is old and focused on you and lifting your eyes to the beauty and glory of the triune God revealed in the Son and the power of now a love for the one you once hated. And that power then extends into your horizontal relationships. No, here, even in this warning, to avoid such people, there is good news of the gospel reminding us of the gospel's great power and making us more like Jesus by making us lovers of God and lovers of our neighbor, like our crucified Savior laying down our lives for others. And to be clear, Paul says to avoid such people. And it's a good clarification and reminder for each of us that these characteristics are, are rampant in the world, but when we see them in the church, our antennas are to go up and we would be careful that we are to share the gospel with our neighbors and build friendships, relationships. But those whom we bring into fellowship with, we want to be with those that there are evidence of the Lordship of Christ. And these are the ones that we are to bring close into intimacy and fellowship and communion. It's part of remaining faithful. Is that those who are, who are in our, our inner life that we bear our souls with are those who there's evidence of the gospel's power working in their lives. 
And when we encounter those where the, the, the power of the gospel is not evident, then, well, our confidence is in the gospel to transform them. So that's the first thing, the challenge to faithfulness. And it's surprising that it can come from within the church. The second thing is that, well, we want to see faithfulness modeled. In verses 10 to 13, we see faithfulness modeled. So as Paul has laid this out for Timothy, and he's saying, this is how you deal with the false teachers, be on guard against these things. He then begins to then say, Timothy, but this isn't you. It's quite the assurance coming from his father in the faith for Timothy. Many of you probably have looked around and you've seen people who used to be in the pews with you who are no longer in the pews with you. I know that as a minister of the gospel, I can think of several men, several men who ministered to me in my life who would seem to fall into the category of verses 6 and 7. And there are times when then I'm concerned that will I be among the unfaithful or the faithful? And Paul says, but Timothy, you are not to worry because, why? Because I've discipled you. This is part of the means by which God builds up and preserves Christian. It's through the ongoing ministry of discipling one another. Notice what Paul says there. You have followed my, and then he lists off eight things. My teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. And then he identifies from the book of Acts, from his first missionary journey, particular occasions of persecution in Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. This would have been very personal to Timothy. Timothy being from Lycra, he would have been a convert most likely under Paul's ministry as these persecutions are happening. Timothy would have been an eyewitness to seeing Paul being beat nearly to a pulp and his lifeless body thrown out the city and then the Lord raising him up. And Paul says, be reminded of this. You've seen not just my faithfulness, but the Lord's faithfulness to me, that the Lord will deliver me from all these persecutions that are put before me. And if the Lord has done it for me, Timothy, he will do it for you as well. Knowing that there is a, a very difficult day is coming, verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, being and being deceived. Indeed, all, verse 12, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There he says, Timothy, as I discipled you, I, I didn't hide any of this from you. I brought you in. I showed you the struggles. I showed you the battle. And this is true for everyone, for every believer, that until you see your Savior's face and until he returns in glory, that you should expect trouble and persecution. But part of the way of making our way through trouble and persecution is having the footsteps of those who've gone on before us and we see them run the race 
We see them finish their race. We see them fight the fight of faith. And we see how the Lord makes them victors. See, part of being faithful as a believer is, is so much of what we've just been talking about the last two weeks in Pastor Jason closing Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. It's the church's disciples making disciples. And that is evangelism, and it is the life of a disciple. And it is crucial if you and I are to remain faithful that we find those who are a couple steps ahead of us and we grab them and say, show me how the Lord has brought you through. Can I get a window into your life and see what it looks like to be a faithful Christian in business when temptations to unethical practices arise? Can I get a, a window into your life to see how to be a faithful husband as temptations arrive? Can, can I hear the stories of how the Lord has carried you through grief and through sorrow and has delivered you from great affliction and trouble and pain. Let me see what repentance looks like. Show me what it looks like to flee from besetting sins and to pursue godly self-control and discipline. No, faithfulness, we're not set on an island by ourselves, but it is a a discipleship effort. It's something that is learned. And who are you learning from? You're always learning. Who are you learning faithfulness from? You say, well, no one, no one sees any potential in me. No one sees what, what, what I could do or be for the church. And there may be times where people come and grab you and bring you under their wing and their shoulder. And this has been a congregation that historically has done that. But there is a charge for each of us to go and find and say, someone, could you be my Paul? Could you be a father in the faith for me? Could you be a mother in the faith for me? I've just entered into uncharted territory. I'm no longer a college student. I'm moving on into a career. I'm a newlywed. I've just experienced the greatest tragedy in my life. I need someone to walk with me who's a couple steps ahead. And then in turn, Timothy is to then say to others, part of his task in 2 Timothy, the letter is to find others to entrust what Paul has entrusted to him, to them. Paul's goal is that Timothy could come to the end of his ministry and look at others and say, you're not going to go the way of unfaithfulness because you have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. Timothy is to reproduce disciples as he has been discipled. And what is it? What is center at the life of of a disciple and a discipler. What is the, the core, or you could say, what is primary in a discipleship relationship? Well, you see it there in the first thing that Paul enumerates. In verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. 
What does he begin with? Paul, the very foundation of the discipleship relationship between Timothy and Paul, it is the word of God. It is the apostolic message that Paul has been entrusted with that he then is tutoring Timothy in. Faithfulness is modeled and is to be learned. Find good models and endeavor to be a model for brothers and sisters in Christ. And do so according to the word of God. And that brings us to the last part, verses 14 through 17. How to continue in faithfulness. How to continue in faithfulness. None of us can live faithful apart from the word of God. But I wanted to see that it is the very power of God evident in our lives is his word working. It is, our, it is the word of God that makes you and I into faithful men, women, boys, and girls. How does it do its work? Look back at verses 14 and following. Again, Paul, it's a similar language. It's, it's not the same translation as in verse 10. In verse 10 it says, you however, but then in verse 14, but as for you, so, but as for you, Timothy, unlike those who were, who were denying the power of the gospel, who were lovers of self and lovers of pleasure and not lovers of God, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Right there, that is the controlling imperative verb for verses 10 through 17 there in verse 14. Continue. Continue in what you have learned. Now, it kind of feels like it, it, it loses kind of like the, the aha moment. What is it, Paul? How is, how is Timothy going to do it? How is he going to make it? What, what's the secret? Continue. It's nothing novel. It's nothing new. It's continue in what you have already learned. And so what is it that he has learned? Well, and from childhood, and how from childhood you, verse 15, have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. What is he to continue in? Well, he's continuing what he's learned on his, his mother's lap, in his grandmother's lap. In chapter 1, it says that Timothy's faith was preceded by the faith of a grandmother and a mother. It's it's covenant theology that they, as good Jews, they taught him the Old Testament scriptures, the sacred writings, a technical term here explicitly meaning the Old Testament. But what is said about the Old Testament in this, this, this verse here for Timothy? What does he remind him? The things that you learned before you explicitly understood the gospel and had it proclaimed to you before your conversion, these this very Old Testament, Genesis, through the histories, through the Psalms, through the prophets, the law of God is able to make you wise for salvation. It's pointing you to Jesus. The Old Testament is Christian scripture. And if all we had was the Old Testament, it makes us wise for salvation. In some ways, the entire New Testament is 
commentary on the old. So Christian, part of your faithfulness is digging into the whole counsel of God as God has preserved it for us through the ages. And going into and wading into the passages of the Old Testament. Some of you will start in the new year Bible reading plans. And some of you will say, this year I'm going to read through the entire Bible. And then you'll get to Leviticus and be like, this year I'm going to pick up Morning and Evening by Charles Spurgeon again. But here, hear Paul's instructions. Continue with it. Stay with it. It'll make you wise for salvation, showing you the Savior. But interestingly and important to take notice of, he says, Timothy, from childhood, faithfulness begins in the home, making disciples of children. What's implied here is that children can receive and understand the Word of God. They can do so even before they can read it for themselves. And as we are seeking to make disciples, those who are in a guardianship, those who have adopted, those who have children in their home, whether grandchildren or their biological children, there is a high calling to teach the sacred writings to your children, to make them wise for salvation, to do so before they can read the scriptures themselves. It reminds me of uh, a time probably about seven and a half years ago. Well, yeah, seven and a half years ago or around that time, my daughter was uh, sitting on the floor and she had grabbed not a children's Bible, but a grown-up Bible, no pictures, no nothing, and she's flipping through page by page by page, starting in the beginning, going to the back. And as she's doing so, she's very young at this time, and she's muttering to herself something. She couldn't read yet. And I, I got quiet. I was trying to listen to hear what she said, and what she was saying was, Jesus loves me. Turn the page. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. From Genesis to Revelation, she did that for a while. It was so encouraging. Here she is before she can read it herself that the gospel was beginning to grip her heart and mind. Now, I can't take too much credit as a dad. I'm pretty sure that at that time she was convinced that Noah built the ark to escape from pirates. But that's the point of the scriptures pointing us to the great salvation accomplished by the Son, telling of His person and His work. So if you do start the Bible in a year, prayerfully go to it and say, Lord, this morning you have spoken in your word. Would you show me Christ? May I feed on Him the bread of life as I read here in the law of God. He told Timothy, remember who you learned it from. And then he gives him this assurance, verse 16 and 17, that the word of God, Timothy, is, is really what you need. It is sufficient to keep you faithful 
and to make you fruitful. The priority being on faithfulness, but it will make you fruitful as well. There in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And as it is for the pastor and the teacher, the Bible is all I need to minister and to accomplish what God has commanded me to do. It is the same for every disciple. Every disciple is called to good work, to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. And how do we do so? It is the Word of God working in us. Now, what is said about this word is made very clear in verse 16. Look back there with me. All Scripture is breathed out by God. There it is, the origin of Scripture affirmed here in the New Testament. What is clearly stated in the Old is, Thus saith the Lord here, Paul makes an assertion. And he's going beyond what he previously said about the sacred writings. Here, the, the, the Greek word there at the beginning, all, is taken to modify all Scripture. It's not saying that all the inspired parts of the Scripture are breathed out by God, but all Scripture is the product of God's breath. There's a word here that Paul, as far as we can tell, made up in the Greek. God breathed. God exhaled. And so our ESV translations are faithful to that. It's helpful. And it's a good clarification that what we have before is in our hands isn't the writings of religious devoted men who in an elevated status of, of thinking about their creator wrote down these inspired texts. And it's not a matter of God taking something that others wrote and then breathing in it or through it, but that its very origin is from God. And this is where we get the doctrine of inspiration. This is the doctrine that has been heavily debated over the last two centuries, but God has brought in clarity through some of the finest thinkers in this continent around this matter. And what is at stake is, is the Bible faithful in all its entirety? Is the Bible filled with good things but not completely true? This statement would say that God produced all of Scripture. And so therefore, all of Scripture is from the mouth of God. And so therefore, we have a God who cannot lie, and who will not lie. So we have an inerrant testimony to his special revelation preserved in his providence. If you're new to church and new to Reformed theology, um, a simple, uh, concise way to explain the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture would be this, uh, that the 66 books of the Bible have two authors, a divine and a human author. That's the first point. The second point of inspiration is that the divine author ensured that the human author accurately relayed the message 
that the divine author intended. And there's more to be said about that. And there's good resources to look into that. But that all of Scripture is from the mouth of God. Great. For what end? Well, the apostle tells them for, it's profitable for equipping. So in between it being profitable and equipping, he lays out four ways that it profits the believer and equips the believer. So what is it there? Teaching, verse 16. Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. There's a discernible pattern in describing the profitableness and sufficiency of Scripture. There's the, the positive and then there's the, the negative, meaning the way that it, it builds up and the way that it removes, the way that it, it helps us grow and the way that it cuts away, if you would. So they're positive. It's, it's for teaching. It instructs by imparting knowledge. But then it reproofs. It's for our reproof. It refutes and shows us errors. It gives us positive instructions and then it shows us our wrongful thinking. And doing so, it corrects us. It sets us in the right direction. It sets what is right. Correcting being there, kind of like the mending of a broken bone. And then training the disciple in righteousness. Do you see the pattern? Teaching positive, reproof, negative, fixing, correction, putting us in the right direction, then discipline showing us the way to go. It's an interesting thought to consider. What's going on here? Where does Paul come to saying, I need to connect the breath of God with the sufficiency of Scripture to shape the Christian into a faithful and fruitful Christian? Remember from the very beginning, God spoke the world into existence. And particularly, when he comes to the sixth day and he creates man, he forms him from the dust, and then he exhales. He breathes into the man, Adam. And Adam is in the image of God, created by the breath of God. And what is lost in the fall? The fellowship of of image bearers with the one in whom they bear his image. And the image of God is marred by the fall. But in salvation, it is the image of God that has been revealed in Christ and now is being renewed in the sinner. So how does God do it? By the word he breathed out. It's almost as if God in his great kindness and compassion breathed out into the dust of human language. And it's so powerful that as it comes to the life of the believer, it makes us renewed into the image of the Son. So what is your expectation when you come to the Bible? We don't want to be like those 
in verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. We don't want to be like those having the appearance of godliness because we know a lot of answers to theological questions and Bible quiz bowl, but denying the power of it. No, we come to those saying, God, this is your word, and in it is contained the power to transform me. That according to my old nature, I was unfaithful. But having been made new in Christ by the working of God's word, I'm made into a faithful one who will fight the good fight, who will keep the faith. Amen. Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our great God and Heavenly Father, what a great privilege it is that we were able to carry in your God-breathed word with us this morning. Now, some of us brought it in in our pockets on a phone. Some of us carried in paperback or leather Bibles. May we not take it for granted that uh, what a great privilege it is that many of our brothers and sisters throughout the ages did not have a copy of God's word with them. And yet your word was faithful to transform them to keep them, to save them. So may we not grow dull to these glorious things. Lord, we ask that we would delight in who you are as it is revealed in your word. I ask that as we open up the scriptures, we would see the one who is the living word, the one whom all scripture testifies to, and that in this prayerful study of your word, we would know communion with our risen Savior. And that we would be conformed more and more to his likeness. I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.